Welcome to Heads Up on Money, the heads up you need to make better financial choices. Hello and welcome to the third and final part in our mini-series of financial planning for couples. Today's one is for the cohabitees. What are the risks to be aware of? Thanks for tuning in, folks. Here we are. We've reached our final episode on financial planning for couples. Quick recap, episode one, we laid out the foundations and said why it's always better to financially plan together and couples who plan together stay together. Episode two, we looked at the benefits of marriage when it comes to financial planning. As I mentioned, it's not a reason for marriage in itself, but there's no getting away from the fact that you get massive tax and investment perks when you are a married couple. So if you want to understand more about those, check out the previous episodes of the podcast, episode 20 and 21. This episode, episode 22, we're looking at it from the perspective of cohabitees and where they fit into the wider framework of financial planning as a couple. So cohabitation, what is it? Well, is this you? Cohabitation, the definition is two people who are unmarried or not in a civil partnership, but yet live together in a long-term relationship without being legally married. So you consider yourselves married for all intents and purposes, but for whatever reason, your wishes, whatever they may be, you are not married and you don't plan to get married. You will continue to exist happily under cohabitations. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm labelling you as cohabitees. Now, why did I want to talk about cohabitees when it comes to financial planning as a couple? Well, this episode is going to be a bit more negative than the previous one. Episode 21, when we looked at married couples, civil partnerships, I was outlining some of the massive and often really generous tax perks you get available to you as a married couple. Well, as I kind of hinted at in that podcast, as cohabitees, I am sorry to say you don't get a lot of the privileges that married couples get. I've had situations in the past where I've sat down with cohabitees and I've laid out the pros and cons of marriage versus cohabitations and they've said, look, shall we just go to a registry office and sign the formalities? And it's ludicrous, but that is what we're talking about here is that they, the differences on either side of the fence are drastic and whether this will ever be aligned, I do not know. That's way above my pay grade. But we're just going to talk today about some of the risks you should be aware of as cohabitees. So listen up if this is applicable to you. If you're not a cohabitee couple, if you're married or if you're single, please do share this with anybody you know that are happily unmarried couple because I really think there's a lot to be gained from this one. So let's dive into it. So point number one is you don't get any of the legal perks that are available to married couples or most of the legal perks, should I say. Quick caveat is I am not a lawyer, I'm not a solicitor, but I do come across these things in financial planning arrangements for my clients. Now, the biggest misconception is people think we're basically married. We're bound to have the privileges, the entitlements and the rights that married couples do have. We've been together for 28 years, for God's sake, and we've got three children. Well, you'll be surprised and probably dismayed to find out what would happen to your assets if you separate from your partner or if something was to happen to them. It's not as comfortable and well-cushioned as the situation is if you were a married couple. 
So first of all, let's assume that you are in this relationship, a cohabitation relationship, and you're happily unmarried. You've got no desire to be married. You'd have done it if you wanted to do it. So just carry on as we are. What do we need to know, Benjamin? Well, many of the perks I outlined in the previous episode, check out that one for some context. Things like transferring assets between one another without giving rise to a capital gain on that asset, or transferring assets between you to optimise your income tax positions if one of you is a higher earner and the other is a basic rate earner, or if one of you is a basic rate and one of you is a nil rate taxpayer. You just don't get the option to switch things around as married couples do. And that's a massive, massive disadvantage. Other things I pointed out around the things like inheritance tax, that's another privilege that's just not applicable to you. You don't get to inherit a spousal transfer of an inheritance tax exemption. You are pretty much hung out to dry when you are cohabitees. So let's go into that one in a bit more detail. If your partner dies and you are in a cohabitee relationship, the IHT inheritance tax perks that I mentioned in the previous episode just don't apply. So let's look at this for an example. We've got partner one, partner two, and partner one dies. So even if their will passes everything to the surviving partner, let's say there's just two of you, it's not complicated, you don't have children, you basically provide wills so that if one of you passes away, it jumps over to the surviving partner and they carry on. Well, what does that mean for inheritance tax? Well, no matter how tight your wills are, inheritance tax will be payable on the first individual to go. Contrast this with last week when I said if the first person in a marriage was to pass away, provided the wills provide for one another and things jump over to the married survivor, you don't have to pay inheritance tax on the first death. Instead, it just rolls over and you can basically use two of your IHD exemptions, being the nil rate band. But with cohabitees, it's just not this pretty. And as I'll mention later, this is where the importance of a will comes into place because if your surviving partner dies without leaving a will, leaving things to you, then you've really got little in the way of legal rights. So it's really important if you're cohabitees that you have tight wills that clearly stipulate what you want to happen to your assets on your passing. But regardless of how tight that will is, the inheritance tax exemption that's available to the first death on a married couple is just not there for cohabitees and it can result in some fairly nasty inheritance tax charges on the first death and then it just gets far more complicated in managing your affairs because you need to work out how is the survivor going to pay that inheritance tax liability on the first death. And these are not nice things to think about but that's my job when I sit down with clients is to challenge the not nice things, bring them to the fore, sort it out and then tidy it away so that you don't have to think about it. But many people make the mistake of just brushing it under the carpet. And when it comes to cohabitees, that is so, so dangerous. So recapping on things like income tax and capital gains tax, let's say Steve and Sue are happily unmarried. Steve is a basic rate taxpayer and Sue is the couple's higher earner. She's a additional rate taxpayer so she's earning very high levels of income paying high levels of income tax and as a result high levels of capital gains tax. Sue cannot just transfer assets to Steve to make the benefit of his lower tax position. In doing so if it was an asset that was subject to capital gains tax doing so would be a essentially a chargeable gain. It would be a chargeable event subject to capital gains tax if she was to sell it. She can't just bypass this over to Steve and for him to later sell it, whereas if there was a marriage between the two of them, that would be feasible. 
So it's very tricky because in cohabitees, whatever assets you own individually will be subject to your income tax rates and your couple's assets will be subject to their income tax rates and capital gains tax rates, of course. So there's much less discretion, much less control in terms of optimising the two respective tax positions, another con compared with the married counterparts. When it comes to things like your family home, again, this is an area you really want to be seeking legal advice around, but the short and sweet summary is that you can own your home in different ways, in terms of you can be tenants in common or joint tenants. Tenants in common means you own your respective shares of the property and if something happens to either of you, your respective share will be passed in line with your will. Or conversely, if you own the home under joint tenants, then what's mine is yours is the way to think about it. It passes over to the survivor. Now this interacts very closely with how your will stipulates things. And what I'm alluding to here is the risk in terms of if you are cohabitees, And let's say you don't have tight wills in place that specify you'd like to pass the asset to the other survivor. Let's consider our example of Steve and Sue. And let's say now that Sue has some children from a previous marriage that she wants her will to go to. You can see the risks that's presenting themselves here is that the children of Sue might end up inheriting a share of the house. How will that work in the dynamics with Steve? Or... Other considerations should be if Steve didn't own any of the house at all, then effectively he could end up homeless in some situations. What if the next of kin of Sue decide to evict him? They decide to sell the asset. It becomes fraught with difficulties and complications and it's way, way deeper than this podcast. It's really an area you need to seek legal advice around. And if the first partner to go doesn't have a will in place, then their estate will typically be distributed under the rules of intestacy. Broadly, that means that the surviving cohabity partner doesn't get anything at all. It all goes to next of kin, children of Sue in this instance. So it's a really complex area and can become really problematic, and I've seen it happen. Now, looking at the perspective of if you were to go your separate ways as cohabities, There are pros and cons here, of course, compared with married couples. A pro is that it's significantly less complicated. There are less legal rights attached to everything. So the chances of you racking up massive legal bills and divorce lawyer bills are significantly less likely. But with this comes added risk, added complexity in terms of you don't have legal protections in place. So it brings a whole new level of risk. It can be around the ownership and distribution of the family home, as I've alluded to, or it can be things like your investments. Now, typically, when it comes to cohabitees, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. So if you've got individual savings accounts, ISAs or pensions or general investment accounts in your own names, they will retain in your own name if you part ways. But anything that's in joint general investment accounts or joint bank accounts, then that becomes up for debate, let's say, in terms of who gets what in that respect. So it's pretty clear to see that for cohabitees, you just don't get as sweet a deal 
as married couples do. And there's been a lot of pushback around this. It's, it's discrimination, you could argue. So it will be interesting to see where things go from here. So the question now is, okay, you've painted a pretty bleak picture here, Benjamin. So what kind of things can we be thinking about to alleviate some of these concerns and try and put in place some strategies to mitigate these disadvantages? And how do we become more protected like married couples? Well, the answer is, Some of the perks, like I talked about, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, income tax, passing of assets, it's just not applicable to you. I hate to tell you, this is just something that is not going to change. But there are legal structures and things you could be putting in place to help your cause. Obviously, draw up a will so that you clearly stipulate what you want to happen to your assets in the event that you pass away. These can become simple or quite complicated in terms like if you own an asset, you want your partner to enjoy the right to live in that asset for as long as they live and then it passes to your children. It can get really complicated here, this is why I'm saying speak to a solicitor, but basically the headline and the heads up is if your partner is not named in your will, it's going to be very difficult and it's going to become really problematic. Another thing you might want to wish to draw up is what's called a cohabitation agreement. Have a read online as to what this is and speak to a solicitor if you'd like to draw one up. And it basically outlines a framework in terms of just putting the obvious in front of everyone and agreeing to it. So it's things like how much has been put into the property from one member of the cohabitee couple? How much has been put in by the other? What will happen to the bills if something was to happen to the both of them? How will the breakup look if they were to go their separate ways? Who will remain in the home? Who will find a rental property in the short term? It's down to your situation and a solicitor will draft this with you. And obviously it's not nice to be thinking about these things. You don't go into a relationship planning to break up. But as with anything when it comes to financial and legal affairs, it's the peace of mind is what you're paying for. Set and forget, as I like to say. You just want to get the foundations in place, get the legal framework, the financial framework in place, and then forget about it. And cohabitation agreements are really great to get all this out in the open. And you both sign and agree to it, and then you file it away. And hopefully never need to use it. Tip number three, as I've mentioned, do take a lot of care in terms of how you own the home. Speak to a solicitor on this one in terms of what happens if one of you is to pass away, how are the title deeds of the home held, are they shared, are they partially held. It's a big area and with cohabitees it's a greater risk than most so do speak to a solicitor. And they should be doing this as part of their conveyancing when you purchase a house but it's just a heads up to be prompting this with your solicitor and ask the questions. How are we holding the property and what does this mean if X was to happen in our situation? Challenge them. You're paying them a fee. Very often, conveyancing solicitors can be transactional in nature. I found that. But if you've got a good conveyancer, they're worth their weight in gold. So do challenge this. And the last thing I'll share is just it's really important to make your pension providers aware of your wishes also. So key point here and a misconception in general personal finance is your pension is kind of considered separate to your will. It's not distributed in line with the terms of your will pensions and money held within pensions when i'm talking about pensions here i'm talking about defined contribution pensions so pots of money that you build up an investment portfolio in not final salary or defined benefit pensions if you need a recap on those see a previous episode i've got a pension episode on let's get ready to rumble dc versus db so do check that one out but what i'm talking about here is if you've got a defined contribution money purchase pension as they're called make sure your nominations of wishes are up to date. 
get a form from your pension provider, speak to your financial advisor and make sure it's clearly articulated where you want the pension to go in the event that you pass away. These wishes are not legally binding and that's partially why pensions are considered out with the estate for inheritance tax purposes. A separate podcast to come on that one, of course. But what you need to know is by getting your wishes down, it gives much greater likelihood that it will be distributed in line with what you would want to happen. If your cohabitee is not mentioned on this paperwork, then it's a lot harder to demonstrate evidence to pay that to the cohabitee in the event that you pass away. And in situations of a marriage, it's arguably more likely that it will eventually go to the right recipient. But in cohabitations, you've got less legal rights. You're pretty much considered isolated to respective individuals. So get as much laid down in the foundations and framework as you can. And pension, expression of wish, death benefit nomination forms, whatever you want to call them, speak to your pension providers and get these down in writing. Oh, cohabities, I really do feel for you. You're probably listening to this podcast right now and you're probably signing papers in a registry office next week. So now you know what I'm on about when I say that cohabitees just don't have the perks available to married couples. And it'll be interesting to see how much these rules will align over time, but as things stand, you get a pretty crap deal, let's be honest. And with that, it brings our three-part mini-series to a conclusion. I hope you've enjoyed these three episodes if you are planning financially as a couple and whether you fall under the marriage consideration or if you are cohabitees, I'm hoping there's some takeaways to be thinking about here. The broad summary is if you're married, you've got it a lot sweeter and cohabitees, there are more risks to be aware of. So if you've enjoyed this, leave me a comment, leave me a review. I would really like to hear what you make of them. And do pass this on to family or friends because it's things that are really important, can have massive financial implications. So just share this with them, take 20 minutes out of their day and nail some of these things down. And that's it. That's a wrap. Thanks, Money Nerds, for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. I will catch you all on the next podcast. Enjoy the rest of your days. Enjoy the rest of your evenings. See you next time.